Books, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This time, our text is not a book. It's Songs for Drella, which is an album from 1990. Um, it's the album that John Cale and Lou Reed made about Andy Warhol after his death. Uh, Cale and Reed were, of course, members of the Velvet Underground when Andy Warhol was their manager. Um, I'll be talking with Lior Schneerson, who was also on our Chess Story episode. Uh, he's a writer and a musician. Um, he teaches writing at NYU and also does a podcast called Camper Can Kalethoven that is partly about John Kale. Um, he does that with Ryan Walsh and Evan Zagranza. Uh, they're going to be discussing Songs for Drella in mid-April, and I think that they'll post that discussion on YouTube. Uh, we tried to make our schedules line up for a crossover, but it didn't work. Uh, I'll link to their conversation when it's out. To summarize this album, it covers Andy Warhol's life from his childhood in Pittsburgh through his years as a pop artist in New York. I don't know how much to assume everyone knows about Andy Warhol. Um, his artistic career is very famous, uh, but also pretty unique in how many art forms he worked in and how collaborative his processes were and how much he was involved in the lives of his collaborators. Um, it's one of the subjects of this album, which shows him both as a visionary leader, who's full of confidence on the one hand, and also, on the other hand, he's a person who is so lonely, having all these intense relationships does not take the edge off of, off of those feelings. Um, and he's shot, and he survives for 20 more years, and eventually dies at the age of 58 in 1987. And then Cale and Reed first performed this album in 1990. So, with that said, here's our conversation. Okay. I have a question for you that just came to mind. Okay. Yeah. You can cut it in later. No, it just came to mind because yeah, uh, I just turned off self view because I didn't want to look at myself anymore. Okay. Uh, and I found that um, I, I've been doing this more often. I've been turning off self view and it's been fantastic. Okay. Gonna... For Zoom meetings. Yeah. But I wonder do you, do you, have you done that? No, if I don't. If you go to the top right, there's a view menu. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Okay. And you can hide your self view. Okay. I find that like, you know, um, this concept of um, efference copies. This is part of um, theories of mind, theories of self. I encountered it in one of the, you know, one of the trendy books about octopuses that have come out in the past few years. Awesome. Uh, This one's by Peter Godfrey Smith, I think his name is. And um, we we don't have to talk about this at no, all. I want to hear it. it seems like this very is what the, the episode is about. But um, in according to that book, um, self consciousness begins in this kind of basic uh, predictive function of minds, where um, we have to be aware of the difference between ourselves and what surrounds us. And um, we also have to be aware of whether actions that we take are working or not. So according to this theory of mind, the mind creates uh, something called an efference copy, which predicts the result of an action. Like if I want to move my hand to the right, my brain will send a little copy of what that should look like. Yeah. And apparently, you know, according to Smith or Godfrey Smith or whoever he wants to be called, that is the root of consciousness because it's an awareness of self and this thing can either be fulfilled or it can be interrupted. That's so interesting. And, um, you know, the, I find when I look at myself on, when I can see myself on zoom, that's sort of an efference copy overload 
because I'm busy enough creating the efference copy of myself when I talk to you or to anybody else. Yeah. That and and I'm looking at your face to see to what oh. degree I exist, you know, and I'm active in the world. And if I can see my own face at the same time, that's not the same thing as the copy that I'm sending out to myself. And so there's it's there's a disconnect there. And my my vision of myself is always disappointing because it it doesn't have anything to do with the self-image that I'm trying to read in the face of the person I'm talking to. That's so interesting. I'm just thinking about what you're saying and thinking about um, something that I've thought that also seems relevant to Andy Warhol's interests and yeah. to the things that we are inevitably going to talk about in relation to this album about um, collaboration and seeing oneself in the eyes of another, that the actual, the feeling of being beautiful is something that people pursue so much, but it doesn't, the, the feeling of being beautiful is to squander it. There's no use for it if you get there. Oh, that's funny. It's like uh, it's nothing a, <laughs> that you can use it for. I had, a, I had a, an analogous thought, if not a similar thought, that you may have to cut in later, but I want to get it out now or else I'll forget it. You know, the, um, part of the reason that I... Okay, so I um, uh, absorbed, I guess, or let reflect off of me part of the Andy Warhol Diaries, um, uh, what do you call it, miniseries on Netflix. Yeah. You had already said you didn't like, and I told, I asked you not to tell me why, because I wanted it to come out in my own viewing and in our conversation. But uh, as I was watching it, I thought, I hate this thing too. <laughs> good. Okay, and, good. Oh, thank goodness. Okay. What do you hate about I, it? And like the way in which I hate it helps me posit it as a foil to Songs for Drella. Yeah. Yeah. Because it... It does the exact opposite thing with um, the remnants of Warhol's voice. It ah. dehumanizes it and depersonalizes it in a way that doesn't actually make any sense. Leart, that is like word for word what I hated about. <laughs> like word for word, right down to the comparison to Songs for Drella. Like how much of Warhol's soul is in Songs for Drella in his friend's memory of him. And how much of the meaning of his voice, even if it's not his own phrasing, and even literally, it's not his own voice. Um, but there's so much of his human presence in yeah. the way that his friends can recreate him. Um, He's reflected in in human beings, you know. Exactly. With, with exactly. He had FaceTime. And the mechanical reproduction of his voice can only... It's like it has no intonation, it has no emphasis, it has no subtext. The way that he lands on each word cannot possibly tell you anything you need to know. It can only the distort the words. I, I listened to some some people talk about you know the intention behind that, and you you know this already, but this is ostensibly to match or even idealize um, Warhol's actual intonation when speaking that his, you know, his affect was flat. And he famously said that he would like to become a machine. Um, the other half of that is because machines have fewer problems or because machines don't have any problems or something like that. Yeah. But the problem with that, like the only way to take that statement seriously, I think 
is to take it as kind of a joke or sort of and or to imagine that um you you can't like the it to to make warhol's voice into an actual machine to make him into a machine kind of discredit or, or like misrepresents the desire to be a machine because yeah. you can't be a machine once you are a machine then you're no longer a machine or the machine is no longer you like the whole point of a machine is that it doesn't experience and so there's no pleasure in not having any problems like the whole <laughs> i feel this so much and it, it it um it connects to the the last thing i wrote in my notes actually right before we started you know talking here um which is that um everything he does he is both doing and not doing at the same time and i think it's confusing to people because it seems like irony but i think it's it's almost like if you think of the distance between reality and irony but then in the other direction where it's like this hyper sincerity about everything he's doing that is almost difficult to perceive because it's not how people usually do things but um like when he talks about work so obviously work is one of the songs and songs for drella he is both working and it's also about the american you know work ethic whatever <laughs> it's funny because the 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 lyric is andy was a catholic and I'm like, what's the Catholic work ethic? <laughs> you know about the I know about the other one. <laughs> um, I thought Catholics like to dress up and like sing songs. Um, yeah, I think that the um, the Blake Gottmik biography does a good job of just saying like technically Catholic, but not like you'd think. And it's not yeah, it's not quite a, like a very easy connection between his religion and his anything really about his art, which I think is, I mean. I think it's a fool's errand to try to yeah. connect someone's early experiences to their art. It's like a Freudian fool's errand. Uh, well, the only, the only the only way that I can make sense of it right now is that, like, his being a Catholic involved going to mass every Sunday. Like well, he knew he was a Catholic because he went to mass every Sunday. Yeah, or maybe like a feeling of guilt or shame, or you know, but like a lot of religions go in for for those things and a lot of people without religions can also enjoy some guilt and shame but there's um, like wait before we move on before we move away from, from the catholic thing yeah yeah uh i do not know what byzantine catholicism is like or how it distinguishes itself from roman catholicism uh if i if my like if you can just sort of follow the assumption that um that there is like there's a, a an emphasis on ceremony like a mass is a mass it's a thing um there's an emphasis on uh visualization there's an emphasis on or there's a there's a long tradition of um iconography that yeah. um you know and and obviously like none of the things that i'm going to try to say about warhol like if if uh, if i'm the first person to say any of them that means that they're wrong because i don't know anything about warhol so um it must have been said a million times that um you know that a like um a, a an ongoing relationship with the, with icons means that you think about icons yes. and how icons work yeah i think that um in a nice way that is something that people have said about warhol you know and i think that i think it's a worthwhile thing to say definitely you know i think that um 
I think there's almost a limit to how far it can take you. Kind of like, like, okay, one of the things that was said about Warhol a lot around me when I was first getting into him is he's all surface. And people still say that. Like, people still compare him to, for instance, the abstract expressionists, um, that he was obviously sort of working in conversation with or against in some way. Um, and saying that they were like profound and that he was, you know, obsessed with celebrities and mass culture and, um, and very surfacy. But um, like, I disagree with that just wholesale, because I think that um, if you look at, I don't know, like Dutch paintings of, household objects or like any kind of memento mori or any kind of like venus paintings or you know like if you look at the whole history of european art that would be his tradition those images are so well supported by you know it's like what is the difference between a um electric chair and uh the skull and the ambassadors that you know that painting or or any still life that has a skull in it and rotting fruit and that kind of thing like saying like you know sorry but the the thing that it makes me think of is uh the difference is that um is the contextlessness and it makes me think um like and this is something that i haven't heard but i'm sure exists out there is you know is like i mean is is pop about the removal of context so that it seems surface or it seems deprived of meaning, even though it isn't? Well, that's kind of the question is like, is any of it deprived of meaning? Was any of it ever deprived of meaning? No, or I don't think so. Something that, that was like the thing that people said about him in order to understand him in context when he first, but it's like, I don't, I don't really think that it, um, I don't think it's like a meaningful way to read any of his art really. No. I agree. And I don't even think it's contextless. Like, I think that he was very clearly making, I mean, Picasso was more contextless trying to take the aesthetics of African art without any African culture and, you know, put Yeah, but it's in a room. But isn't, like, like, you're not competently reading any of Warhol's paintings if you aren't reading them in the context of knowing what a celebrity is. Like, if you don't know who Elizabeth Taylor is, you're not really looking at his paintings of Elizabeth Taylor, you know? Much well, like, uh, oh, yeah, sorry. No, but, I mean, if you're thinking about still lifes, then, you know, if, if a, you know, if a soup can, for instance, is, is a kind of still life, and if if kind of the interesting thing about it, well, if you know one of the interesting things about it is there's no background, um, then like one of the, like one of the marvelous things about it is you don't. Uh, I was going to say you don't you don't need any cultural. Oh, you do need cultural competence to read it because you have to know what a Campbell soup can is. Yeah. Um, you don't need exactly the kind of cultural competence, but no, because Elizabeth Taylor and Elvis, like you know what those things are, you know what an electric chair is. But it's, I don't know, I do, I do find that they are like, you, you, you know what they are because of the context where, of, you know, where you're from and, and, you know, where you grew up and what images you are used to, but their contextlessness because they're presented in such a way that you're not supposed to be used to it or you don't have to be used to it. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's kind of the, um, 
it's like it's the paradox at the center of it that is interesting to me and about his paradoxical work but then i think he has other work that's not paradoxical but so this is a bookmark and the idea of the non-paradoxical work well i talk about the paradoxical for a second because i think that the um it's interesting that the that the pop art stuff is um, something that songs for Drella passes through quite quickly. It's not actually very like the soup cans are not interesting to the album songs for Drella, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, and yeah, well, they yeah, do, this is, I want to talk about this. Yeah. And they, they do talk about like, they, they go over the idea of like, you know, what's he doing when he's um, when he's working very hard and it's like, he's simultaneously making reference to the idea of work and also actually working very hard. And he's making reference to the idea of needing to earn a living, but also actually making a living and needing to, um, which is um, in a world that doesn't have, you know, a system of patronage. Um, and, like the way that the the icons like they you know saints carry certain like a lily or disembodied eyes or something like that to show you what saint they are because they're not supposed to represent like there's not supposed to be facial features that let you know this is the saint that you're looking at right now it's like a symbolic saint big nose (laughs) um and i think that um like in that way, there's certain information you need to bring to a Warhol pop art painting in order to read it. But so that's the, it, it does have a need for context in the way that you're reading it. Wait, Anna, can you, can you take a, an example and, and show me how that works? Oh, like if you don't know who Elizabeth Taylor is, you don't really know what's going on in, it's like you're not you don't have enough information to read the painting. If you, and then if you read the painting, what do you see? Um, that you see Elizabeth Taylor's face uh, reproduced over and over with um, different degrees of inkiness. You know, like it's it's dirty and it's clean and it's changed and altered by its repetition. So I wonder about this. I'm, I'm trying to think because like. There's definitely been a time in my life. I bet the first time I saw those Elizabeth Taylor prints, I didn't know who Elizabeth Taylor was or what she looked like. Or I may have known who she was, but I didn't know what she looked like. Obviously, it's something else if if you recognize that the image has been taken out of context. Um, but even if you just see a woman reproduced four times, you know, with different hues or whatever, or you can see the little little dots of the newsprint, if it is newsprint, if it's some, another image, then you know that something is being done, you know, like did it, it, it's like, you know, the, you know, when Kale says I've, I've got a Brillo box and I say it's art, you know, I forget who it was, either him, either Warhol or somebody else saying, you know, art is when somebody points to something. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, those, those, you know, Warhol paintings, gesture to anybody who's ever seen a person i think or an object uh they gesture towards like kind of like the emotional nugget of what art is like this is the thing that art does and then you can take that to you know to other works of art or other paintings or other things that may or may not be works of art and try it on for yourself try to you know reproduce that kind of mental 
hurdle, kind of poke yourself or nudge yourself over it. And then you can kind of take that to the rest of the world. So, okay. I, this is, this is the non-paradoxical art that he does also that I think is, um, so one of the songs and songs for Drella is open house, which I think is a really, um, amazing pair of words to describe Warhol himself as not being a person who is reserved or closed or uh, reptilian, um, but somebody who's painfully, agonizingly open and who um, is vulnerable and um, longing for love um to a degree that is difficult to witness um, yeah but you know all those things can can exist at the same time i know that's what makes songs for jealous so good is i think that it actually really like makes like very powerful yeah. art out of that the, the those things but i think that so some of the art that i think he does that comes from that other place of a complete lack of irony and a complete engagement with people being people is like the screen tests like what it means to actually film somebody's face and their expressions as they um, are not engaged with, as they're bored or uncomfortable, like once they no longer are putting on their face and their face slips. And like it's it takes the um, the heart of portraiture, the the purpose of portraiture, and it expands it and makes it more, um, it just turns up all the dials to 11 on the whole concept of portraiture. To my mind, it's so far from the idea that he's just looking at the world and flattening it, but instead engaging with people as people, not it's, as it's objects. Little, it's a little strange. Uh, it makes me think of two things. First, is that you know the uh i think and correct me if i'm wrong that uh when he's doing those screen tests he's not there right the machine is just kind of running you're there alone with the machine yeah so that's <laughs> that's an odd, i love that's it odd, so much well it's an odd way to imagine engagement and then the second is have you ever had us have you ever been the subject of a screen test no it's a frightening idea have you uh, yes, but maybe even more importantly, uh, you've seen them, right? You've watched a bunch of them. Yeah. I find, and again, I would love to hear if your experience is different, but I find that generally people look really good. Um, yeah, I think that they're loving portraits. Like, I don't well, think I, that they're trying to humiliate people with their, uh, with their vulnerability. I think that it's, um, I think he loves people. Well, uh, that's the thing. Like, there's no, the camera can't love you and the camera doesn't draw you out. The camera's just there. You're alone with the camera. And you look good, I think, because you look good. Like, you are, you're sending effort, you're sending an efference copy. Oh, interesting. You don't think there could be like a. Because you're I not. I think that there has to be a version of that exact same exercise that would embarrass and humiliate people. Yeah, if it was candid, if they didn't know they were being filmed. Um, this is I, this is why I was thinking of this earlier uh, when I was eliminating self view. Yeah, yeah. Because self view always catches me off guard. I'm like, I don't look like that. But 
if I have time to kind of arrange my face for a camera mm -hmm. to like imagine that I'm in relationship with the camera, mm -hmm. I am definitely going to like what I see when it comes back. And this has happened. Uh, Ryan did a bunch of these things. My friend Ryan Walsh, um, as part of a promotion for a previous album, he took a bunch of Boston musicians and had them do screen tests. And like everyone was beautiful and I was beautiful, you know, but candid shots are not going to let you do that. Interesting. And and that's I'm not that's not at all. But people say. couldn't and see that, themselves yeah. while they were being filmed, like it was no. the equivalent of like a Zoom call. Uh, no, but like we we know how to do this because we're in relationship with other people our whole lives. The copy of a person that's not exactly the one that a person cr comes up with themselves, because after all, um, you said, and this you know, I, whatever this is a real thing that Andy's always saying that he wants to be a machine he wants to have a boss on retainer you know he yeah. wants somebody who will um sort of lighten the 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 weight of being a person all the time but that what he's called his nickname is drella which he doesn't like which is right. the contraction of cinderella and dracula um which is such a it's such a human nickname. It's like two versions of both being filled with pain and longing and also causing pain and longing in others, which is very much not mm. being a robot or a machine or a person who has a boss, you know, who's who's kind of making the decisions for them. Uh, anyway, so this is about Drella, which is not a version of Warhol that he necessarily would have chosen or wanted mm. but it's the one that his friends saw and one of the things that i um think about a lot with it is that he doesn't talk the way that um lou reed and john kale have him talk well, that's funny that sometimes they sometimes they imitate his voice and his vocal style but sometimes they have him say things that are not at all how he spoke but must be in some way expressing something about him that they could perceive. There's something that Kale said about this, um, where uh, this is from an interview that um, that he and, and Lou did um, at the time this was coming out, uh, just talking about this continuum of a voice where, you know, there, there are parts, you know, in a dream or the whole of a dream where you get the sense that Andy is talking and we can talk that the, the way that that composition comes about is pretty interesting you know from that place to to you know lou very much telling a story in his own voice the way he would do on on a song on a different album and about that uh, continuum kale says i think there had i wish i could do a kale voice but i can't kale says i think there had to be some allowance made for confusion of personas in the songs this is something so it was something that they you know they thought about and um and and may have been i mean for our purposes we may as well say that it has to have been part of the conception of the album that you have two artists and performers each of whom has a very strong distinct voice you know you you like their their voices against one another it's amazing they can sing in harmony and you can hear kale dialing it back when he sings harmony with lou because you couldn't have those two voices like speaking themselves at the same time and have it be anything but discordant uh, really which is part of the fun 
but like it's it's it must be very hard for either of these two guys to voice somebody else kale tries it a lot in his earlier albums he's a very kind of theatrical person yeah um but you can always tell it's him yeah so like and it's it's wonderful that they you know obviously they recognize and make use of um the inability of of their voice to really perform Andy's that you wouldn't want to do that in the first place. Um, yeah, but they kind of do in the, the dream. In the dream, one way that that is like um, created from little snippets of of Andy's diary, it does sound like his intonation. I don't hear it. Really, you don't think I, that the hear... the driftiness and the silences and. If, if you listen to Kale, uh, he has a song called The Jeweler on um, one of the earlier albums, which is, um, you know, there's a tradition from the Velvet Underground going back to The Gift where Kale speaks over, uh, you know, a musical background. Okay. Um, and his, in The Jewelry, in The Jeweler, the, the delivery is very, in all these songs, the delivery is very deadpan. Yeah. In The Jeweler, it's, it's, um, like half of the energy is gone it sounds floaty the way that um a dream sounds floaty so i would say that that is evidence against my case that he's doing kind of a warhol voice but on the other hand he was hanging out with warhol at the time and you can hear that this is it's like a voice that a lot of people did like i mean bob dylan did this voice also the kind of like floaty long gaps in between sort of gnomic pronouncements you know i think it must have been something about the time that it was like the trendy post beat way of talking to show that you're mm. like a real artist or serious person or whatever you know um that you're like mystical uh i don't know what all the elements are of the voice i just think that it's it's more about the time than just Warhol. I don't think that Warhol was the only person who was doing it. Oh. But I do think he was doing it. Huh. Do you disagree? You can disagree. I don't know. I really don't know. Okay. I can't say. I know how to place the I know how to place Kale's performance in a context of Kale. Yeah. Other other than that, I really I, I don't know anything about it. Well, I it, so okay. I, and I think that in some ways, like just moving from the 60s to the 90s or you know 1990 when this is this is made um i think that there's got to be a desire to distance themselves like that they're talking about the 60s and 70s and 80s from 1990 um but very much like you wouldn't want to put on your clothes from 10 years ago mm -hmm. presumably they want to you know use the idiom of their time to you know, they want to talk about the past as modern people. Meaning what? Talk about the past as modern people. Meaning that they would that they would want to talk about how it felt to be in that time and place, but not necessarily project themselves into the 60s. You know, they don't want to talk about the 60s as 60s people. They want to talk sure. about what it was like as 90s people. Right. And they've both come so far in their music over the intervening 20 years. Yeah. That they they you couldn't help being distant from who you were just because there's evidence of how you've progressed as an artist yeah 
Reed and Kale, the, so specifically the thing that seems that I, that I get hung up on is the way that they do images, the images um, <laughs> uh, repeating. Yeah. It has this really staunch and vigorous way of like very staccato, very loud, very forceful delivery that it just seems impossible that Andy Warhol ever spoke that way ever. It's like it would change his face if he ever spoke that way, even for five seconds. Um, right. But the images themselves are loud and repeated. And maybe Lou Reed is actually using the voice of the art not the voice of the person who's commanding the art to be made. Yeah, no, I don't hear, I, I don't, I, this isn't the song where I feel like any, like, like Warhol's manner of speaking is like, they're trying to, that they're attempting to channel that sort of thing. I mean, they're very I much like, not. I like, the idea. Yeah. Like, I like the idea of every time he says images, mm -hmm. then another image is, is produced. Yeah. And they're like, silk screen. So presumably it feels like a factory, like Hale's drone. Yeah. Hale's drone feels like a machine. Yeah. You can hear it cycling back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And the the idea of a boss, which I think this is another of those things that's like it's it's like traveling the distance from sincerity that irony is, but in the other direction, that that um that it feels like irony because it's not exactly like sincerity, but it's hyper sincerity that that Andy is absolutely devoted to the idea of factories and bosses and creation in a um in a, a way that's ultimately a community act you know it's like it's a bunch of people doing something and that's something yeah. that I think songs for Drella is very interested in it's not interested in the pop element of this art it's very right. interested in the idea that it's being made by a group of people well, definitely, because they're, I, I think, you know, their, their interest, this, I mean, if it were me, this would be my interest. So I assume it's their interest. Their <laughs> yeah, interest is in what they, like, how, what did they learn from Warhol? You know, they didn't learn how to make visual art. They learned something about, you know, making things and being with people and making things with people. Yeah. And so, of course, that's what they're going to want to sing most most about. Well, I mean, that's interesting because I think one of the mysteries of this album is that you can see the perception of Warhol of the two of them, that there's like an emergent property of the two of them and their perception of Warhol together. But I don't see their perception of one another in it. I don't know what it is. It's not that no. I, it's like, it, it's a question mark. It's not that it's not there. It's that I don't see it. The thing is, uh, and this, this is definitely true in um, the, uh, the film made of uh, one of their rehearsals before uh, one of the BAM shows. Mm -hmm. And this is the one you can look up on YouTube. If you hear, uh, you can hear it. You may not be able to to see it in the in kind of the lyrical play, but you can hear it in the way that they're playing music with one another. Uh, and and this happens more on that in the live show than it does on the recording. The recording sounds as if you know it's 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 it, the like the sound distribution is very ordinary. It sounds like two people went into a studio 
and then worked with a producer and then these things came out. But when they're, you know, when they're doing their dress rehearsal in this film, the way that they're responding to each other in instrumentally and vocally too, and the way that they look at each other for cues, you know, they count in the songs silently just by looking at each other and, you know, they see the rhythm in each other's faces um, before they start the song. And you can see this in, in the, you know, the lead up to some of the, some of the song performances. Um, the, and it, that's fine with me. <laughs> like I, you don't forbid it. I don't need, I don't need to know so much about how they see each other. Cause I can see how they hear each other. And I like them because they're musicians. That's why I'm interested in them. That's it. It's um, the first question I usually ask on these podcasts is why did you choose this text? Um, but obviously I am the person who um, chose this text and forced you to do this episode with me at great personal cost. Um, and thank you. I'm grateful. But um, the reason that I wanted to talk to you about it is um, that I love it and I'm not a musician and I read it as a text, like a, I read it like a play. Mm -hmm. you know, it feels like a play that is being acted. Yeah, well, there is a lot of that to it. It, it's, it's like, like a play I, reading. It's it, like under Milkwood. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say like, I'm not wrong, you know, that it feels like a play where it feels like, um, like storytelling by people who really deeply care about their subject and they're not, um, they're not acting the amount that they care. They're performing the amount that they care, you know? Um, which I find really beautiful. And occasionally I find the music. Tell our listeners what you mean by that difference. Um, What's the difference in acting and performing? I guess pretense. Which one? That, that acting would involve some amount of, of pretense. That, so what is what, what do you do as a performer? The, like well, I mean, you could be performing, like acting and performing, but you also... Could I mean it's like the difference between fiction and memoir, I guess. Like obviously fiction comes from your own heart, but memoir it comes from your own life as well. So which one is this? I think it's memoir. I think that they are just very um directly using the amount that they are able to give us as musicians, but also as like public people, songwriters, performers, yeah. they're giving us something really vital and direct about somebody that they love without, and this is something that we had, we had talked about also, that it's the collaboration that they have, that Kale and Reed have, and that they both have with Warhol is like a deep sense of intimacy without any sense of merging. There's no yeah. sense that they're trying to soften their differences or correct for any misunderstandings or differences between them to like compromise. There's nothing that any of them are compromising on. And in fact, to the point that, that they are cruel to each other and that that is in the text. But the fact that they are each three completely separate people 
who have this level of intimacy with each other, it seems like it's they're, they're almost telling a story of, of how much intimacy would be lost if they did merge more. Yeah, um, that's interesting. It's also interesting, uh, you know, it just it's this, you know, this performance, this taping of the rehearsal is really worth watching uh, for many reasons. But um, one of them is just so you can see the staging of the BAM show. And we've talked about this too, which is, you know, the two of them at opposite ends of the stage. Kale with uh, several keyboards, often he'll switch, he'll, sorry, he'll split hands where the left hand will play uh, a piano and the right hand will play this really like massive synthesizer or vice versa. So you hear him really playing two parts at once, like two different instruments at once. Yeah. He's on that side of the stage. And then Lou is on the other side of the stage with, he, I think he plays the same Telecaster the entire show and the same guitar the entire show. I think he plays through the same amp the entire show. You can see his pedal board. There's like 12 pedals on it. And from that board, he gets, he manufactures two completely different sounds, a kind of um, ringing, uh, clean sound that you, you will hear a lot on Magic and Loss, which is the next album he's going to do. Yeah. And also this beautiful distorted fuzz that you hear a lot on the previous album, if my memory is right, on New York. And he switches back and forth between those things. And so he's kind of playing two instruments. And so they're each like massively in control of their technology and their skill. They're on opposite ends of the stage. They're looking at each other, but they're definitely not together. And in between them is this giant projected screen of just images of Warhol. You know, that, I think I did. That is the one that I saw. And this is yeah. the, this is the punchline of what I was saying and why I wanted to talk to you about it is that I'm not a musician, you know, and then that, that, that exact thing, like when you said the thing about how uh, Lou Reed uses his guitar in two different ways, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I yeah. don't know how you to read that. Switch. Um, oh, I'm really, I'm really happy to know that because I don't know, they, you know, they, you can, and they do, they actually, they help you in, in the, in the instrumentation, which becomes, I think, and this is not totally smooth, but in general, it becomes more complex, you know, over the first third of the show. So it's, it's, a, you know, it's in the same way that stop making sense starts small. And then you add piece after piece after piece, small town is just kale playing a piano, right? Straight piano accompanying Lou who's singing. That's all there is. And that's beautiful too. Cause you have one accompanying the other. It's just piano and voice and it's spread across the stage and then open house. Um, I think Kale is using a synthesizer already, and that's where you first hear Lou's clean tone. Yeah. And then uh, style it takes, I think, is the same thing. We've got Kale on piano and Lou just using the clean tone. And then work, he starts with the dirty tone. Yeah. And then trouble with classicist, he goes back and forth. Lou goes back and forth between those two sounds. And by then, like the whole orchestra is out there, basically. Like they've revealed everything that, they, that they've got. And then they play with, um, you know, with those elements in various orchestrations through the rest of the show. But it builds in, in, you know, in the way that a theatrical performance does or in the way that musicians knew how to do, say, after Stop Making Sense, maybe before that too, but, you know, I don't know. Um, so they give you a way to understand what they're doing musically, which is obviously super important because it's a, you know, <laughs> it's a music show on the one hand. Uh, but on the other hand, it's, you know, John Berger, forgive me, talks about um, how one of the like principal communicative features of visual art is its silence. And, you know, 
Warhol, for all his filmmaking and band management and uh, whatever it was, was not a sound maker. Yeah, for sure not. And so what, you know, in the course of 10 minutes, those first few songs, these two musicians are showing you all of the stuff that sound does. And from the very beginning, everything that sound does is the work of connection. It's, you know, connecting people, it's connecting these two people to these images. And if you have a, you know, an audience in the chamber with them, it's connecting everybody in the room, whether you're paying attention or not, the vibrations are running through you, like music acts in a way that images can't. And that's something that is being stated from beginning to end. I really like that. I really, really like that. I'm just thinking about what you were saying, because like not being a music person, I was thinking about it as like narrative and time, but that's like from a from a narrative perspective that I just hadn't thought about. But I But it is narrative. It, well, that's what I mean, is that the um I think that you're <laughs> coming at it from like a wordy side and you're coming at it from a more musical side. And I I don't mean to uh I'm not trying to lessen the amount that you're also a writer. I just mean, it's like I, it's the musical dimension is very difficult for me to, to understand or to verbalize because I, um, not trained in it, but also it's not like, um, it's something that I perceive easily. Um, yeah. well, I mean, something that's, and I, I'm sorry, I'm going to repeat myself, but yeah, something that's it. cool about that film. And, and this is also true. And I keep bringing up, stop making sense. Something that both of these films do is that they, they are music lessons too, because what the performers do is so often visually represented. You see Kale's hand all the way up here playing the organ, all the way down here playing the piano. Yeah. And that helps you filter out those two sounds. Yeah. So yeah. that you can hear those two parts of the orchestration. Like Amadeus, how it makes you better yeah. listening to Mozart. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I that I that I forgot. But that's that like when I was just sort of it slipped out from my mouth that Warhol made films, like his great films have no sound. Not only no sound, but also um, the 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 way that they use time is not for change exactly, but for. for almost lack of change or um, it's the same as the repeated images that are slightly different. It's like these things are similar and slightly different, but they're almost like um, a series of stills that are set side by side, but animated, which is obviously what film cells are. Yeah, that's great. um, But they're not about change where this album is absolutely about change yeah yeah forever changed forever changing though i have to say forever changed is maybe my least favorite song on album oh it's my favorite really tell me about that because i don't want to tell my least favorite story um wait say your least favorite story no because i don't why do you like it why don't you like it um it seems like if Reed and Kale each come up with a little um, capstone on their feelings about Andy before they come up with the final images or 
you know, they're not going to finish Andy's life. They're just going to finish each of their own relationships with Andy. Um, I would say those two songs are Nobody But You and Forever Changed, right? Does that seem right to you? I haven't thought about it like that. Um, do you think that Forever Changed is Kale's song saying, this is where I left Andy? This is my this is my summation of my personal relationship with Andy. So- I didn't. I hadn't gotten that sense. Um, I can try for thirty seconds to to um, to see it through that lens and see what happens. Well, don't because it doesn't look great. It, it just seems like oh, you were changed by thirty years of your life. Okay, like why would you not be changed? Well, I thought this one was from Andy's point of view. Tell me. I guess I just think the word changed is just weak. It's like the word impact. Or maybe even weaker. I don't know. I'm going to stop being mean about it, though, because I want to hear what you like about it. Um, I, I don't know. It, it sound, To me, it just sounds like a kind of idiosyncratic. Uh, well, to me, it, like... Um, so there, there's a part, there's a, there's a way in which this whole thing is um, a Broadway show. Yeah. It's very, it's very musical theatery. And uh, I mean, the way that it starts is just so beautifully theatrical. Uh, and so I'm looking for like the end of the play and we've just had, you know, a dream where as you mentioned before, the you know all of these, um, all the words in it are, in some way, transplanted from Warhol's published diaries, the diaries that were published in '89. But none of them, as far as I can tell, and I haven't looked at all these lines, just a few of them. But the ones that I looked at are none of them. None of them were direct quotes from the diary. They were all paraphrase or amalgamations, sometimes from entries that were like there can be one line. Um, or a pair of lines that are an amalgamation of excerpts from diary entries that are years apart. So there's combining in here that is dreamlike combining, you know, in the way that a dream will combine elements of your day or of your year, you know, or your decade that have nothing to do with one another. The dream will combine them. And the song is doing that, you know, from uh, these diary excerpts. And so there's this very dreamlike, um and and also very uh lifelike uh monologue of somebody who is at death's door and um you know it's an image of dying alone and uh you know it's it's just so sad and scary it's so sad and scary yeah. And it ends and nobody called and nobody came. And then there are those really harsh, almost like distorted bell tones yeah. of the two instruments together. And then forever changed, you know, the way that it is musically and lyrically too. It it's 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 like it's it's let it, it's like, okay, we can let go for a second of the sad and scary stuff and begin to too, like you were saying, put a put a capstone on it, or put um, you know, yeah, I guess a, a kind of a stone to kind of mark the end of the path or a bend in the path. 
And how, how are we going to market? Um, not by saying that something has ended if Andy Warhol dies, but that, um, that the death is, or the moment of dying, let's say, or the moment of witnessing death is, uh, it's an opportunity or in, or a necessity, you know, of, um, this is to me, this, this, this song seems like another version of your life passing by you in a flash, but yeah, as a series of changes and like, it's, it's a very energetic, uh, it's an energetic vision of death as, as, as a way to see life as a series of changes. I agree with you. Um, and I agree with you also, as I look at the lyrics, that it is definitely from Andy's perspective, even though I perceive it as being from John's perspective. It's not, it is from Andy's perspective. Um, and I do think that it calls back to the staccato forcefulness of images, where mm -hmm. it's definitely a feeling of... Um, he's not ending on a note. You know, Andy, if, if this is Andy's voice, this is not a vision of Andy ending on a note of um, despair, but a note of transformation, like forceful and excited transformation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also a very, it's very much a John Cale song. It, and like, it is, but so, okay, to me, you might think I'm frivolous, uncaring and cold. You might think I'm frivolous. Depends on your point of view. To me, that is like a comeback from mall teenagers. It's like saying like, oh, well, that's just your opinion. Like if someone insults you or I'm like, oh, it's too weak. It's like, it's not, it's not an actual comeback. It's, you're not actually. Yeah, not, but I mean. It, there's something about it that I'm like, I just, I don't. I don't like it. It doesn't feel as deeply connected to what I perceive in Warhol's art. Like I don't, I don't see him as frivolous, uncaring, or cold ever. Like I yeah, see but... him as complicated and bizarre, and sometimes awful. But well, that's. I mean, isn't the important thing? Um... The like the like the like the necessity of ambivalence, or like the the valuing of ambivalence. Like it's this, but you know, tomorrow it'll be that. You'll wake up tomorrow, and it'll it'll be different. Or I will be different tomorrow because you will be different. I think that the way that the um, like, if you think of it, beside nobody but you, I think the way that. Nobody but you seems to roll across your hands like silk. Like somehow it just, it's always tumbling and changing and pivoting and um, it refracting in this way that simultaneously shows somebody who is very strong and confident and also devastated with loneliness and insecurity but like 
it's it's both at the same time completely um and to me this is not that subtle no it's not i was just thinking as you're as you're you know describing lou's poetry there that uh you know lou you know for this album like, like lou reed wins if it's i know and it's <laughs> sad because i love john kill so much i know and he you know he i remember when i first started when i was first listening to this album i remember looking at the liner notes and like you know lou's got a whole couple of paragraphs and and they're all very sensitive and describe some process i wish i had them now um and kale's is just a couple of lines about how he wished he had done more yeah um doesn't change my love for this song i love i love kind of like the striding through the changes i find it beautiful all right and i'm to gonna go back to i'll love it again i i didn't used to think about this album as a series of songs i just used to think about it as like a play it's like you don't choose the scene that you like in a play i mean maybe you do maybe people do yeah that. but i don't do that to, to really look at it play. as a play you should watch the performance i did watch the performance i, I know, but know that, that was the one you could talk the, the, about. The, the, like the some i will i will watch kale singing this song over and over again i find it really powerful it's much more powerful than the words yeah i think that's right yeah and it's not just the music but it's his face yeah the way that the music is moving his body it's for real like so Lou, Lou's poetry is better here but kale's body kale's got a better body like andy said he really does and there's there's really something in his performance that is um that really transcends it like we went to see the um lou reed exhibit at the nypl and it's like very notable how uh, Lou Reed has the exact same expression in every single photo that's ever taken of him, basically. And he basically has that same expression. Like there's a little shift when he, I guess, like decides to be an elder statesman instead of being like a young tough. Um, yeah. I guess puts on glasses. Um, Lou's views. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like, it's just like, um, it's like he goes from being Lou Reed to being Lou Reed crossed with like Kurt Vonnegut. Just slightly oh yeah <laughs> yeah they have similar similar like stubble patterns but i feel like uh john kale is constantly transforming like physically he always looks like yeah he just angles his face a little bit he looks different um he's he's an actor yeah and i think that that comes through in how the visual performance changes the like if you what you know you watch the video that we're talking about Kale's parts come through differently and Lou Reed is just like, he's just singing his song. And yeah. visually, I don't think anything changes about it. Except, like the, again, the, like if you watch him play guitar, it's different. Uh, he's a very animated guitarist. But so, okay. One last thing <laughs> I'm saying last because of the amount of time we've already spent talking about this, but I actually have more things to say about it. One yeah. more thing about, um, about this. I made you watch uh, pain and glory the Almodovar uh, yeah. movie in which it's about his relationship with um, Antonio Banderas. Antonio Banderas, yes. Okay, it's his, um, it's his, it's his relationship with Antonio Banderas, and then he has Antonio playing himself. So it's a similar way that 
um, Reed and Kale are, they're doing Andy's voice. They can't do it naturalistically. They wouldn't want to try to imitate Andy's voice. It would be distracting and weird if they did a whole album that way. But at the same time, they are actually inhabiting his voice. They're taking his diary entries and creating a new diary entry in which he talks about them yeah. in his own voice. And so I thought it was like in some ways a similar project to this, this movie Pain and Glory, where the actor is inhabiting the director, but not trying to imitate him, but trying to act from the soul. And then even in that movie, there's a part in which the actor that is playing the Banderas role plays like he, he says words that were written by the, the Almodovar person, you know, so like the director within the movie um, writes something that the actor then reads. And one thing that I think is really interesting about the, the way that the acting works in that movie is that the, is that Banderas himself, I think, gives one of the performances that makes me personally feel like I'm watching acting and it's incredibly effective. Like I feel moved by acting as a craft that doesn't disappear, but that can be foregrounded and is beautiful by itself. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, the Banderas character it just seems like he's he's like, I'm here on stage and I'm reading with intelligence and emotion and people care about it. And it's like, yeah, that's that's kind of what I think of as acting like at a, yeah. a you know, at an ordinary competent level. Um, those layers of acting impersonation emotion and then language of like what who actually wrote any of these words whose emotions are being expressed i guess is the word but it's like a combination of it's like expressed and made into sausage like who, whose emotions are are mm -hmm. motivating this um <laughs> it, that it gets so tangled when there are so many layers yeah and but those players what they add up to is intimacy between right. people or among these people because there's three in the case of um kale and warhol and reed and um it's almost just not knowing exactly who wrote these words exactly who cares about the things that are being spoken about um it it shows that there's an intimacy that is beyond the question of like, were they mean to each other? You know, which is also yeah. a concern. Like they're in there, they they care a lot about the interpersonal stuff. Um, but I don't know, it's like a very small genre, but maybe it's like one of my favorite genres ever is artists slightly impersonating their friends. Like maybe it's yeah. the most beautiful thing people can possibly do because it's I find it so moving. Well, it's interesting because like you know, the the idea of it it uh, it it grants um, 
a kind of vital dimension to the idea of influence. Yeah. Because in something like this, in a work of art like this, it's best when you can't separate out um, a narration of personal influence from a narration of artistic influence. And I was thinking as you, as you were talking about sausage, that um, you know this sort of thing happens to us all the time. Sometimes, I'm sure most of the time it's unconscious, but some of the time it is conscious where we'll find ourselves speaking as somebody who we love or as somebody who has influenced us. And as we speak that thing in their voice, which is also our voice, you know, we come into contact with that kind of mystery, you know, that we can't, and thank God we can't actually say where this thing is coming from, like where this voice is coming from. And we know that our voices are our sausage. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they, they, have, they are flavorful. <laughs> We've got to have a better analogy. Really a sausage has we need a to distinct release flavor. Sausage because it's not it's not serving. <laughs> um, no, I I think that it's like it justifies like the the kind of intimacy and explosion of that merging of as you say it's like it's personal influence you don't quite know who is saying any of these things as you said like it's quotes from the diary but it's never a direct quote from the diary it we don't really know whose voice it is and whose forcefulness it is that is forceful and like the images yeah um song like in some ways all of their voices are separate but in some ways all of their voices are overlapping and merging and the amount of pain that there is in the abandonment and in the being shot of this album, you know, and of Warhol's life, it's like, it's the implicit balancing that is not in the text, but in the context of the text, which is, yeah, maybe everyone will abandon you. Maybe you'll die alone in this really terrifying way. Maybe you'll be shot but also people will know you in this way that most of us can only dream of yeah to be known by people like this yeah and so like the you know at the at the risk of being uh overly at the risk of being oversaturated um you know music the fact of the fact of musical instruments coming together or the sound of musical instruments coming together takes over for that part of the personality that says that there is wholeness and completion you know what i'm saying like you walk through life a disordered mess but there's a part of you that says no i'm an i i'm a person i am discreet and whole like the the work of art here and i'll i'll insist on this this is a musical work of art this is a piece of music uh, that has words in it, and it's important that it's a that it's prime that it's primarily a piece of music because, um, because like what I think what for me what's valuable about it is what it does that images can't do. Um, and you know, in this case, 
set against these you know narratives of of tension and of splitting apart and of um you know machine cycles and repetition like the music that they're making and you don't have to make music like this they choose to make music like this music that insists on a, an organic coming together of different sounds yeah. and the creation of yeah. of like a sound you can hear them doing it especially in the parts that are hard to play um oh interesting you know like starlight open wide and images too they they set up these cycles that are rhythmically complex and they don't have a rhythm section to keep time like they have to do it by themselves and with each other they kind of have to keep each other afloat in these fast moving um cycles that are again rhythmically complex and that you need to pay like strict attention to with another person like you have to be in the same musical mind as them in order to make this thing sound like a sound and the fact and again this is great when you watch the performance you can watch this happening like the fact that this has to happen just just hammers it over and over again that there there is more to this story than alienation you know and decontextualization there's all this other stuff too all right that's the end of our episode on songs for drella Thank you to Lior and to Adam Bear for our music, as well as everyone at LitHub for hosting us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners, so please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next month. <laughs>